BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CAPITAL200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Three, two, one... Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. What stories are we telling ourselves and the people we love? Are they serving us or hurting us and them? In today's show, the power of story is made alarmingly clear. I mean powerful at the neurochemical level, and I mean alarmingly in that many of us are mostly passive in allowing old, unchecked, and disempowering stories about ourselves drive us, and not anywhere we want to go. Our show is all about building an optimistic framework, but optimism is a highly deliberate, difficult, and heroic choice. And it's so because, as our guest Rich Curtis shows us today, we are biologically programmed from our past to pessimism. And so we look for the negative in today's mostly non-perilous world, and we compile our stories from this. But fear not, as Rich shares with us his four-step story evolution process to help us access our brain's filter database and take an active role in creating new filters to rewrite the stories that are holding us back to ones that promote our happiness and values, as well as creating systems that defend our good habits. This interview was loaded, as Rich is not about peddling BS and happy smoke, as he puts it. He's all about delivering the full-on goods, from the what and why, to the how. Yeah, I just always want to make sure that we you know, we, we get all the, give them everything they need to actually make a change t- today. Like, that's, you know, they're, they're here listening to you because they want they want to fix something. And so let's, yeah. let's give them what they need to fix it now, not go buy the book or buy 15 more things or buy my course and then I'll teach you. Like, let's just give them what they need and get people moving on. So hopefully we did that today. Oh, we did that today. And you and I are the beneficiaries of Rich's personal PhD in happiness he earned over an intense two-year period as he beckons to us from atop the shoulders of giants in neuroscience, positive psychology, and behavioral psychology with clarifying and directly actionable advice that I really think is an extra level of what I've been looking for in terms of now, what do I do? On top of his story evolution process, we also go into his core four habits in lots of detail, among many other fascinating aspects of the brain's physiology and our psychology, which Rich connects to our daily reality with examples and in easy-to-understand terms. This is a must-listen for parents as well, as there is plenty specifically pointed to help them ensure that their kids develop stories that will serve them instead of hinder them. But I'm going to hold back on trying to summarize much more. There really are just so many details I'm excited to highlight right now, but you know, it's really all in there, so... Let's just get to it. Hi, everybody. Welcome now to our interview. I'm joined by Rich Curtis. Rich is and always has been a guide. He spent over a decade as a raft and mountain guide on the rivers and mountains of the American West and as a real estate entrepreneur. 
Now he spends his time guiding people through life's inflection points as a best-selling author, story expert, and success coach. Rich guides, coaches, writes, and speaks to help entrepreneurs, CEOs, adventurers, and go-getters rewrite their stories, get unstuck, and live their dreams. As a passionate student of the power of story, neuroscience, positive psychology, and behavioral psychology, Rich believes in a world where people are invested in the process of being better tomorrow than they are today. His life's work, including his book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, have been about helping people get there. Outside of work, Rich is a dedicated father of two, husband, traveler, and outdoor adventurer. Well, I just love the sound of all that, Rich, and I'm pleased to have you on. Thanks for coming. Right on. Thanks for having me, Matthew. I'm excited to be here, too. I'm loving the name, Mr. Brightside. That's, I would write four books tomorrow, again, before ever having to choose another title. I think that's the hardest part of writing a book. So I'm always so impressed when people have like a, a creative, you know, witty title that really nails their subject matter. Yeah, please. I'm hanging on to it. It captures a lot for me. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, as a proponent of optimism, um, you know, I'm all about perspective. And, uh, and, and so your emphasis on power of story and then informed, of course, by neuroscience and positive psychology is all very exciting to me. And I'm, of course, I'm always looking for practical tools to develop resilience, appreciation, and other aspects of an optimistic mindset. So I, I wonder if your core four might be just the thing we're looking for here today, um, along with your other ideas. But before we get into that, I want to start first broadly. Why is story such a crucial issue? Yeah, I think... Um you know, anybody who does uh, work in the space of ideas and helping people move forward, we tend to give out a lot of, um, you know, prescriptions, you do this, do that. And, and we don't often tell people how to get there. The how is often a lot harder than, than the what in this case. Um, and so we might tell someone you need to, to get to a more positive space with this, or you need to rewrite your story, or you need to get a more powerful mindset. And to someone like you or I who works in the idea space, all of that instantly resonates, makes sense. That's, yeah, that's our, that's our jam. We do that. But to, to the average person, that doesn't mean anything. Well, great. Thanks for telling me that. How do I get there? And, and so what I love about story is it's really the programming code for our brains. So our brains are pretty much uh, the most energy hog organ that we've got. If, if you were uh, you know, actively using your brain to make every decision all day long, you'd have to sit around and eat as much food as an elephant to keep moving, right? Yep. So in order to not do that, we make these intense uh, filters and maps um, for the world. And then we put our brain on 80% autopilot. We already have a map and a filter for what we're gonna allow in, what we're not gonna allow in, what our perspectives are. And as we move through our life, nothing gets in that isn't already pre-programmed into those filters for the most part. And that's great if those filters are taking you where you want to go, if those filters are creating the outcomes in your life that you want, if those filters are positive, if you took an active role in creating them. But most often we haven't. And it's really uh, hard for us if those filters are, are creating outcomes we don't want. And so story allows you to reach into your brain, access the filter database, pull out the stuff you don't want, rewrite it into something that will serve you and put it back in. And that, that's why it's so powerful. Man, I, okay, I got it. Uh, <laughs> and in your book, you do say the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of the questions we ask ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves. So it, it's about questions then too. Is that right? Yeah, I think questions are what lead us to be able to identify our bad stories and, and to be able to get to the point where we can admit to ourselves that we're making this up. So if you have something about yourself that you believe that's negative, one of the sort of the biggest mental stumbling blocks to getting past that is getting to the point where you admit to yourself that, that that's your story. You wrote that. 
you're in charge of it. And once you get to the point where you realize how much of this you're making up, you have to ask yourself, why am I writing such crappy stories for myself all the time? Why, who would ever write this down? Who would write down, uh, I'm a terrible athlete. I'm a terrible father. I'm never going to amount to anything. The world wasn't meant for somebody who looks like me. Who would write these stories? You wouldn't do that on purpose. Yet most of us have a lot of that kind of story rattling around inside our head. And I didn't realize that until I faced a really hard moment in my life. My mom passed away suddenly and unexpectedly in, in uh, 2013, about 41 days before my first child was born. So she, she almost got to meet him. And that plunged me into two years of sort of depression and, and suffering. Um, and I didn't really know it. I couldn't identify what it was or why. And then I had this epiphany one day. And some people have their epiphanies, I think, like, you know, uh, staring at the stars in, in the Andes on ayahuasca or with a spiritual leader in their church. I had my epiphany circling the Costco parking lot, uh, screaming at my brother, having a fight over the phone. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm screaming into the phone. I'm telling my brother, hey, look, we, uh, I, I failed. I'm failing Ann. I'm failing you. And we failed mom. We just stood there and watched her die. She fought for all five of us every day of her life. and We didn't fight for her. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I hit the brakes on the truck, almost got rear-ended by the little security guy in the golf cart who had apparently you know, been told some crazy guy circling Costco screaming <laughs> in the phone. Uh, and I just sat there and I couldn't believe that that story had been inside me for two years. I truly believed at the, the depths of my being that I didn't fight for my mom. I stood there and watched her die. And that story was creating nonstop suffering in my life. And at that moment, I had to ask myself, whoa, is that true? Uh, and I was able to kind of go back through the day and say, well, that's not true. And my mom had a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was nothing we could do actively to save her life that day. Now, my backstory, my history as a raft guide and a mountain guide, I've had heart attacks and broken ankles and broken ribs and gallstones and, uh, you know, uh, swollen appendix in the backcountry. And I've always been able to bring those people home, which kind of wrote this sort of terrible male, nobody dies on my watch story, which mm -hmm. doesn't serve you when you're trying to um, you know, help someone through the dying process. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the day my mom died and I said, well, look, I gave that DNR order to the hospital at four in the morning. I asked my mom to rescind it and she wouldn't. She said, no, I want that to yeah. stand. I handed it over. Um, we, she was a devout Catholic, so we got the priest in to do the final sacraments for her. Um, towards the end of the day, uh, my dad couldn't get in the bed. With her. They, they were married 50 years, had an amazing relationship. My dad couldn't get close to her because of the bed rail, and I couldn't figure it out. So I got the, the nurse over to get the bed rail down so my dad could get in there and cuddle her you know, in her last moments. And she had this mask on, and it was freaking her out. She never liked things on her face. And I said, what's, what's that doing for her? They said, that's going to extend her life 10 minutes. I said, get that off her face. Let's make her comfortable. And so... I was able to look at that day and rewrite that story into I fought for my mom in every way I could to respect her right to die her way. Mm -hmm. So the, the first question, is that true, led me to do that work. And then the second question that I think is even more important is, even if it's true, is it serving me? Because the fact is, both those stories are true. We didn't right. fight for mom. We just stood there and watched her die. That's functionally true. I couldn't do it. I just stood there and watched her die for 14 hours. But the other is true also. I fought for my mom uh, every way I could to respect her right to die her way is also true. So I have two equally true stories. Which one serves me? One is absolutely killing me. And one allows me to feel um, happiness and peace, you know, in relation to um, what I did for my mom the last day she died. I can talk to my kids uh, in, in an emotionally resilient way about her. So those two stories have such wild different outcomes in my life. And once I realized that, I was able to apply those two questions to sort of any area of my life that doesn't work. If I'm struggling with something, I ask myself, what's my story about this? Is it true? And does it serve me? Mm -hmm. 
And that's it. If you apply those three questions to any area of your life you're struggling, it'll guide you down the path of writing a better story and very rapidly upcycling your results and getting to a, a place where you can create better and better and better compounding outcomes. Wow. All right. I got those three questions. I love the sound of that. And I tell you what, I did uh, read that story and it was maybe the introduction of your book. Um, and it was, you know, I was got to admit, I was very moved by it. It was very, you know, well-written, well, well told. So um, anyway, I, anyway, I was feeling that story again to hear when you retell it. I got all back into everything that you were talking about, but uh, I love this, the version you're telling now. So um, what are, uh, I guess, what are the core four then? We'll go right to that. And why are they so important and how can we use them to create happiness for ourselves and for our families? Yeah, the, the core four are um, four daily habits that create the optimum neurochemical environment in the brain for happiness. So uh, what I discovered after that moment in the parking lot yelling at my brother, uh, I went on a two-year deep dive to get sort of a PhD in happiness. Like what, you know, because I was having trouble getting back to the point of happiness after my mom's death. So I thought, well, what is this really? I've taken this for granted as something that's just been a part of my life, but I don't actually know how you actively create this thing. Um, and it turns out it's a lot more formulaic and easier than we than we might have thought. So the first step is clearing out those bad stories. And in the book, I teach sort of a four-step story evolution process. We can talk about that later too on how you identify those stories and actively get them out of yourself, rewrite them, get them back in. And the core four is the uh, the supplement to that, which is four daily habits to create the, the right neurochemical environment in the brain for happiness. And the first one is eight, getting eight hours of sleep, which I'm a father, so I never actually nailed that one. <laughs> I think I got like six <laughs> hours at best last night between the nightmares and things with the kids. Um, but the reason... And, and often we lay these things out and they get, um, they get from the hands of the researchers into the hands of the popular culture and they become a prescription again without the why. And so all of a sudden I'm just adding things to people's health to-do list. You got to brush your teeth for three minutes a day. You got to drink kale shakes, eat fatty steaks, and now you got to be grateful for everything, get eight hours of sleep. Why? Right? Mm -hmm. Like we just keep adding things to people's health to-do list, but there's a real synergistic effect um, with the things I'm telling you. So why eight hours of sleep is really important yeah. is because it tamps down your negative response um, to negative stimuli and specifically your anger response. So if you miss one night of good sleep, you've got a 60% greater response in your amygdala and your brain to negative stimuli. And it's an anger response, right? So if you think of your amygdala as your kind of like uh, angry beer swilling buddy at the bar, who's always looking for a fight, uh, your, your prefrontal cortex is kind of your mild mannered accountant buddy, Chip, who calms him down and says, let's not punch that guy. Well, you miss one night of sleep and Chip's not invited to the party. You get a, a prefrontal cortex amygdala disconnect. And now all of a sudden you just have this amped up negative response. Now, most people in North America, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it's like there in Korea, but in North America, most people don't get eight hours of sleep a night, right? It's, nobody, uh, it's, sleep is, nobody's getting sleep. Nobody's getting five hours in Korea. Really? No, it's that? It's, yeah. It's study, if you're either studying when you're a student, it's studying all the time. And then they try to take it, you know, their last few hours at night to be on their phone because they just study all day. So they can't get it right because they think it's their only time they have. Um, and then... When you're a worker, you just work late. And then, of course, you got the family and then they get their own time later. So they take all that. It's just long work and long study. That's the life. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's very similar here, right? So um, that all of a sudden compounds night after night after night. And now, you know, you're looking at your family outcomes. Why am I fighting with my wife all the time? Why, why am I, you know, being grumpy with my kids all the time? Well, because the natural checks and balances in my brain to help keep me emotionally resilient and neutral are gone. I've disconnected them with my behaviors and habits. So that's why sleep is so important. Um, and then you can add to that 
activities that dump the, the, the happiness inducing neurochemicals into, into your brain. Right. So, um, you know, um, things like oxytocin, um, and 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise does a pretty good job of that. So what we find is 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day has equal outcomes to, um, taking an antidepressant like Zoloft. So like the Duke smile studies found that both groups, the group that took Zoloft and antidepressant and the group that did 45 minutes of cardio a day, they had equal reduction in major depression diagnoses over the course of their treatment. Uh, and the group that did the exercise were 30% less likely to um, revert back into major depression afterwards once they weren't doing the treatment. Um, and the exercise didn't come with all the nasty side effects that antidepressant drugs can come with. So it's a really powerful antidepressant exercise is, and it's going to dump these chemicals like dopamine and oxytocin into your brain. And those are sort of core happiness chemicals in the brain. Mm -hmm. Now I want to be clear here. If you're, if you're struggling, if, if the, the pandemic's hit you really hard, if you've been having thoughts of hurting yourself, going for a jog isn't going to fix that. You owe it to yourself and your family to go right out and get help immediately for something like that. But this is really effective at, you know, a case of the Mondays or your sort of general pandemic blues, or I'm just overall down a bit, right? If you're suffering from major depression, um, this might be a piece of your treatment, but you want to get real help for that. Um, but it's really powerful. So then you combine that with the eight hours of sleep and all of a sudden you've got all your checks and balances, your brain's working right. And now you've dumped all these happiness inducing chemicals, which also have been found to increase your outcomes in, in sales and creativity. Um, it it uh, turns on the learning centers of the brain. So these things all have these synergistic effects for all of your positive outcomes in life. And then you want to add in meditation and people um, will often feel like meditation has to be this big, long um, time investment, but um, even as little as 10 minutes of mindfulness meditation a day, uh, if done consistently, can do tremendous things for your, for your brain. So not only does the mindfulness meditation just give your brain a break and give you some clarity, um, it, it also can dump some of those happiness inducing chemicals into your brain, but it does some other really interesting things long-term, like it thins out the tissue in your amygdala. So all of a sudden you've got that, that amygdala that creates these anger responses and you've got that tamped down by, by getting your sleep and keeping it connected to your prefrontal cortex. And now you've thinned out the tissue. So when I make you angry, less dense tissue lights up in your brain. There's literally less mass in your brain working on being angry than there was before. So your buddy who's been like a meditation teacher for 30 years, it just seems so calm and serene and you don't get it. It, this, it's not like just a hooey wooey metaphysical change that's happened in him. Structural changes have happened in his brain that are creating these positive outcomes in his life. Uh, and then uh, the final one is a daily gratitude practice. And this is another one that's, I think, been kind of co-opted by pop culture. That's just write down three things you're grateful for every day. Yeah. <laughs> and probably, you know, like half the people are ready to turn off the podcast when they hear me say you need, you need to do a gratitude practice because they're so tired of hearing it. And I get it. Um, but what's gotten dropped in the translation there with gratitude is the actual feeling of gratitude. So if you just knock this out as a to-do list and write down three things you're grateful for and move on, you've done some benefit to your brain. You're teaching your brain to pattern your world for the positive, and that's good. But if you can stop and actually muster up the feeling of gratitude for 10, 30, and preferably get to the point of a minute, but just start with 10 seconds on each thing. If you're saying, I'm grateful for my son, I'm grateful for my daughter, just stop and think about that child and actually feel the gratitude you feel for that. Or I'm, I'm grateful for having a healthy body. Stop and feel that. And if you muster up the feeling, then that is actually doing those structural changes to the brain, creating happiness, inducing chemicals in the brain. And that is actually doing the real work that gratitude uh, can do for you. It also, gratitude 
helps you write better stories because your brain out of the box is set up to write terrible stories. One of the reasons we write such bad stories is because we're programmed to, to, to basically be fear-based creatures. You know, there were like, you know, 10, 15 other hominids running around, you know, trying to be the dominant one and become us. And we won and we won because not because we're the biggest and strongest. We won because we're the best at being scared and cooperating. Right. So, um, when there were like scary megafauna, like saber tooth tigers running around, then being really afraid was great. That kept us alive. Now that most of us, unfortunately, not all of us, but most of us don't have daily threats to life to deal with. Um, we then look for negativity instead of things that are going to kill us. We look for negativity. And so our brain is going to um, pick the worst or most negative moments or bits of information from our day to compile our stories and gr- gratitude practice, actively pulling out more positive bits of information helps you pattern your world for the positive and train your brain to look for more positive information to compile your stories from. Mm, all right. Well, I'll tell you what, you just knocked down a bunch of my questions. You got me all over the place now, but I'm, I'm putting <laughs> it on. No, but it is, it is excellent. I'm really hearing all of this stuff. Um, and uh, I, I guess, I guess what I want to know again is, again, more of the practical. So we, we, we understand what you're talking about, but then what are we doing every day? What are we, you know, you're talking about getting eight hours, you're talking about exercise. How do you, how does one, what, what do people do that doesn't put them to sleep? How can we say, let's put ourselves to sleep, right? I mean, is there anything you have to like, or, or to identify um, maybe in, in meditation too? Um, you know, what does it look like for you to actually do meditation? Uh, something yeah. like that, maybe. That's, that's a great question. So, yeah, what does this look like in, in a normal day? And I, I do like to make the distinction that this is a life routine, not a morning routine. There's plenty of great morning routines and great books about morning routines and winning the day. And I think that's great. But, but I, I do think most people live a life that's more dynamic than that. And, and nobody, nobody wakes up at five with a few exceptions every morning and just kills it and knocks out their morning routine and is just, you know, sometimes a kid gets sick. Sometimes you get sick. Life throws us out of whack. And so um, what do you do on those days? And you don't have to do this just in the morning. You can sprinkle it throughout your day. As long as you get it done, it's the synergy of these activities that matters, not the the time of the day you do them. So what does this look like in my life? Developing a sleep routine was the hardest one for me um, because I'm a night owl <laughs> by nature. And because I have ch- small children, which are two things that don't go together, night owls and small children. Yeah. So um, I set a timer in my phone uh, for nine o'clock that says, turn off the phone and go to bed. Right. And so that's my cue to turn off the phone and start my routine for going to sleep and, you know, locking down the house and and getting the night ended. So I'm using the device to remind me to put the device down and move on to that. Um, and, and I, you know, I set that at nine o'clock because based on when my kids get up, if I'm lucky, I'll have eight hours to be in the bed. I might not get eight hours sleep, but I'll have eight hours to be in the bed. Um, and then, you know, things like, um, shifting to paper books rather than reading on the phone so that when I lay down, I can read a paper book and not have that sort of blue light, you know, you know, coming in, um, creating, uh, an environment in the bedroom that is conducive to sleep. Uh, you know, like, uh, with kids, you always have their toys and all their crud in the room. And one, one thing I, I've focused on recently is actually getting all that stuff out and making that, making our bedroom feel like a hotel room, making it feel like a serene, yes. calm space to actually get to sleep. And then most meditation people wouldn't want you to do this, but I actually use a brief version of meditation to put myself to sleep. Um, so I, uh, with the anxiety of the pandemic and everything, you know, everything rattling around in our brains at the end of the day, I've learned that to, to lay in my bed and just do a couple minutes of mindfulness and get everything to slow down and stop, then I can bonk right out. So I actually use 
um, some breathing exercises, uh, you know, some, um, you know, if you, if you breathe, uh, in for at least seven seconds slowly and out for at least seven seconds slowly, you can, uh, sort of trigger that parasympathetic nervous system to calm yes. everything down. So I use that breathing exercise with clearing my mind in a meditation um, style way. And that helps you get into that sleep state regardless of the craziness in the world. Right on. Why, why might uh, some of the experts not like that? Well, because the, the negative side of it is you can uh, end up putting yourself to sleep every time you try to meditate. <laughs> so, okay. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Cause yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, that's pretty, that's great. Um, uh, as far as a gratitude practice, do you have anything specific on that as well? Um, you know, you yeah. to feel it. How do we get the feeling it? Yeah. So I have a small journal, one of those little mini, the smallest uh, moleskin notebooks you can have. And I carry that everywhere with me. Um, so that if I get a chance uh, to do uh, any kind of gratitude practice during the day, I can just bring that out and do it. So I always have that in my work bag. Um, and then it lives on my nightstand. So I typically um, will always do a gratitude practice right before bed uh, because it helps to get those more positive bits of information into your brain. One of the things our brain's doing when we're sleeping is um, compiling our stories and our emotional experiences from the day. So it, it, you know, if you're old enough to have messed around with PC computers and you used to have that sort of defragment the hard drive button, right? Right? where you had a file uh, you know, in this folder and you moved it to this folder and then you moved it to this folder and the computer's got all those weird pathways in there and now you're having trouble getting it to open that file and you defragment it and it creates a new pathway right to where you put it. Our brains work the same way. And the more traumatic an emotional experience we have, the more fragmented the memory of it is. So what we find with, say, people with PTSD, uh, if you trigger them for one of their memories from war or I even had a mild form of PTSD from my mom's death, the brain on an fMRI machine will light up all over the place versus if I ask you about the day you got married to your wife, we'll probably see one big mass of the brain light up. It's a consolidated happy memory versus this sort of traumatic. And so the trauma of these things is created by the chaotic lighting up of the brain all over the place. And your brain's natural tendency at night is to go ahead and compile that stuff and sort it and try to pack it back into one part of the brain. And you can help it by giving it more positive information right before you go to sleep. And so doing gratitude right before you go to sleep is sort of another little life hack to help your brain get through whatever rough stuff you've been through during the day. Yeah, that is a real life hack I'm taking note of because it's, it's curious to me because I would think, you know, you might want to start off in the day to get, get to a mode of what I might call appreciation or gratitude, understand like, no, things are not bad and things are all good. I have a really good life. And then you go out in your day and live a better you know, experience of it. But, uh, but, but I see for the purpose of the brain and what it's, what it's the work it's doing. If we have that knowledge, the practice at night. I mean, what about doing it a couple times a day? I don't know if that would. Yeah. And, and I do do that. And, and doing it in the morning, if you have any kind of morning routine, gratitude should be a part of it for the reason you, you've said, because you're going to oh. give yourself this emotional positivity tune up. And I know you're a student of positivity, you know, all of your outcomes, your sales outcomes, your, uh, your relationship outcomes, all of them are going to get, go up, you know, by at least 30% if your brain is in a positive or happy state rather than negative, neutral or stressed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that gratitude practice in the beginning of the day, you're going to give yourself that little, you know, bump to, to get started. So it's great for that as well. And I carry that notebook with me everywhere. I'll often, um, if I stop for lunch or something like that in the course of my day, I'll often do a little gratitude work then. And the, the hack I use for actually feeling gratitude. So actually like getting that feeling up, um, cause that's a hard thing. It's hard to teach someone to get a feeling. 
something, right? Uh, yeah. But you, but you already know how to do it. Your your brain's already wired, especially when those feelings are attached to things that that are meaning markers in your life, whether that's children or relationships or work. You know, I, I believe you work in a university, so I'm sure education is an important thing to you. So you already have stories and powerful emotions attached to being an educator, right? Mm-hmm. And so all you have to do to feel your gratitude is to tap into the emotional bank you already have. And so. I will sit and close my eyes and bring up a picture in my brain of that thing for which I'm grateful for. And by bringing up that picture and just sitting with that picture, then that's going to already, my brain's already got a pathway for that. My brain already has that picture attached to all those emotions. So if I can just bring up a picture of my son, or if I can just bring up a picture, uh, rafting was a big part of my life for a long time. If I just bring up a picture of rafting in my mind uh, or being grateful for you know being in my body or being able to move, if I bring up a picture of me on a run in my mind, I will already get that flood of emotions. And then, then the goal is just a little bit of a mindfulness goal of sitting with it as long as you can, of not letting something compete with it for as long as you can. And that's why I say 10 seconds. It sounds uh, like, wow, geez, anybody could do 10 seconds, but give it a shot. You know, so sitting there and just focusing on, on the gratitude for this one thing, bring up a picture of it in your mind for 10 seconds, not let anything else compete with it. And that's how you start to sort of do that work. And as you do that more, like anything else, it's a muscle, it's a routine, and it'll start to be automatic to where when you write it down, You'll like now to the point where I write it down, I'll start to feel it before I even close my eyes to see it because my brain already knows what to do. It knows what I'm asking it for and it likes it. It's, you know, it's thriving on that. So it's like, yeah, let's do this. I'm, I'm, I'm getting that emotion right now, you know? Yep. I'm all about trying to make it, make these connections all the time, automatizing habits and automatizing even feelings. I just feel things automatically because of, I, I've worked so hard on, on ideas and repetitions. So down with all that. Um, yeah. I like, okay. So where was I at here? Oh, oh, we were talking, uh, oh, my, the other ones we hadn't talked about is exercise and mindfulness. So, yes, I had exercise, right? Yeah, in terms of putting those in your day, um, exercise is, is one of the hardest ones for people to commit to consistently. Um, and so, you know, for me, the ways to try to, to, to do that is to create sort of a, a sacred time-blocked moment in the day that is totally defended for that and then create routines around that. So um, our office space is also our workout space. So one of the things, and my wife and I will even do this for each other when we notice the other person hasn't done it, we'll put the shoes and the workout outfit you know, in the office next to the exercise bike. So it's there. So I'm sitting here talking to you, but right behind me, I'm looking at the exercise bike and, and you know, my shoes and my outfit, you know, so um, well, I'm not looking up now because I've done that already today, but still that's, that's how it's set up. Right. So that I, as soon as I stand up to take a break from work, I see that. And, and it's there for me. If I have to go upstairs and get it and then get waylaid by my kids or take a work call, it's done. It's over. It's never going to happen. So creating, you know, a, a, a time that's defended and then creating routines that defend it because you will not do it. You will find a way to not do it if you don't really create systems around defending it. Yes. Yes, it's true. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking back to my own experience, but it is true that I do better when I put out stuff. I put out my workout clothes. I, I've done that kind of stuff all the time. Get the towel, get the thing. I'm going to go to the to the gym or whatever. And I, I like to run as well. You, you said you mentioned running. So that kind of thing, but get it out there. And then it's just like, well, I'm going to go now. It's there it is, right? It's really yeah. easy to just say, yeah, if it's just not right there in front of your face. Um, so meditation routines, then you said as well, um, what, is, what are you actually doing? This is a, something that's just kind of a little bit new to me, actually. And I'm um, getting a few different guests t- telling me different things. But, you know, again, the real person, what are we doing when we're, we're going to sit down and do a mindfulness practice? 
Yeah, and and I should mindfulness is like a, a massive wrapper for a lot of different experiences, a lot of different techniques, um, and so is the term meditation. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. like what I'm going to talk about is is like one tenth of one percent of what the meditation world is. But I think they're good uh, entry level ways. If you're not already a meditator, you don't have this practice in your life. These are some good ways to enter into it, mm-hmm. um, and they're ways that helped me enter into it because I'm not a, a good meditator. Like. Uh, I had a job once at a Japanese garden. I was a Japanese gardener, which my, my Japanese friend used to tease me about being the Irish Italian Japanese gardener. <laughs> but uh, uh, I took a meditation class from this Zen priest and I was awful at, at it. I, I couldn't sit still. He was constantly, you know, moving my hands and smacking my back to get me to sit, sit up straight. Mm-hmm. And, and if I ever got to the point where I could clear my mind enough for, for a breakthrough, something would come slamming back in. And then I'd be like, well, I'm not supposed to be thinking about that. I'm supposed to be thinking about nothing, but now I'm thinking about this. Now I'm thinking about how I'm not supposed to be thinking about this. And I suck at meditation. And then that's, mm-hmm. that's what happened in my brain over and over again. I couldn't get there. So one of the things that solved that for me was uh, discovering a hear, see, feel practice of mindfulness, um, which was taught to me by this woman, Juliana Ray, at a conference I went to once. Um, but it's basically, you're sitting in a, in a meditation position, whichever is comfortable for you. And some people have physical limitations. I don't lie down, especially now that I use some form of meditation to help with sleep because I'll be hot. Uh, yeah, so I, big time. <laughs> so I, I sit up in a cross-legged position. Um, I have a bad back, so I'm usually leaning against the wall. I have some support for that. Uh, I do it eyes closed, but you can do it eyes opened. And the the training of hear, see, feel is to really teach you to be able to let go of competing experiences. So you're sitting there and you're just noting what's happening, but you're not attaching any sort of emotion or judgment to it. So you might say, hear the heater fan working or feel the breeze on my face. Or if you're doing eyes wide open practice, you might say, see the exercise bike. You're saying all of it in the same tone of voice. You're saying all of it for about the same amount of time. And then you're moving on and you're just noting what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, but then you're letting it go. Um, so in, when I was doing meditation with Father Ito at the garden, if, you know, the, I felt the fan blowing on my face and I thought about the fan, I thought, oh, I, I just failed. I'm thinking about the fan. I'm supposed to be thinking about nothing. I'm, or I'm supposed to be thinking about whatever our meditation theme for the day was. Yeah. And, oh, I know and, yeah. You know, you've experienced this. Yeah. This, oh, this kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm a terrible meditator at the moment. As, but I mean, <laughs> a lot of people say you, so it's a practice. So there's not really a bad one. You just get, you try to bring it back. So, and then that's your exercise, but yeah. And, and this, so this here, see, feel really allows you to not even, not even start the struggle of bringing it back. Yes. There's no bringing it back. There, yes. It just is. And, and you're letting it go and you can go deeper with it. Like, um, you know, if, if you notice a moment where you let it go, cause you can even acknowledge feelings. Like you can acknowledge I'm feeling stressed or I'm uh, feel tightness in my chest, but if you feel it go and you catch the moment, you can just say gone. You can note that it's gone, that you let it go. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're training your brain in the practice of letting that go. And, you, and you're attaching that feeling, that lightness you get when you're like, oh, I have tightness in my chest, gone. Now your brain attaches something positive, like, hey, I just let that go. How great was that? What else can I let go? Where can I apply gone? And then these things you can bring into your waking life, you know, as well for, for letting go of, of, of things that are tough during the day or whatnot. Okay. A quick one on that, just uh, you mentioned a tone of voice. Is that an internal voice or are you saying this out loud? You can do either. So, uh, people do, do it both ways. I do it in my head. Uh, but but as you know, if you're saying things even in your head, you you, you can be wild yeah. and animated in your head, or you can be yeah. calm. Or um, and the key with the tone is to just um, try to limit judgment or attaching emotion to what you're saying. You're you're trying to get uh, to a really neutral place with that, with the experience. So these things are happening; they are. 
but that doesn't mean anything to you. Okay. You're just letting things come and go, come and go. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, that's your C feel in a nutshell. Did you, sorry, did you have a question about that? No, I don't. I, I thought you might've been done and I, I had to take off, but if you got it, <laughs> run with it, man. Oh, well, there's one more you can try, um, that I use. It's a, it's a green ball meditation and this isn't, this isn't exactly how it, how it's prescribed, but it's a powerful, um, meditation i think for people dealing with anxiety i use it with my kids a lot and and this is a a guided active meditation that you can do with yourself and what's good about this for first-time meditators is you don't have to worry about what you're supposed to be doing i'm going to tell you exactly what to do and you just do it and then there's benefit to it but you don't have to worry about i'm not doing it right right i like the sound of it come on (laughs) (laughs) so you can envision a green ball in the center of your chest and you can make it any color but green the the color green has some sort of um calming benefits to it Uh, in my mind it's actually sort of green and swirly and blue like the aurora borealis Uh, and i envision about the size of a marble Mm -hmm. and then every breath you take it gets larger and again you're shooting for those sort of long slow through the nose try to get to that seven seconds or more get that parasympathetic nervous system working for you so you're you know every big breath in your ball gets bigger and you keep inflating that ball essentially with your breath until you are encapsulated. You are sitting inside this green sphere. Um, And so one of the things that's great about it is as you're taking those breaths, trying to inflate the ball, you, your brain automatically starts to see it as a game and you start to take longer, deeper breaths and try to get the ball bigger every time in your brain. And so you are uh, forcing meditative breathing in a way that you don't have to focus on the breathing, right? There's, there's a goal to it. And our, our, our brains work so good with goals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I find that sometimes where I'm focused, I'm trying to do the breathing, but then I'm focused on breathing and what am I, am I not even doing, what am I focusing on? And I like this idea of getting away from that, doing it yet, not focusing on it, building your ball. Yeah, right. exactly. And then once I, you're in, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, not at all. No, I'm not. Once you're in the ball, then you're, then you have to choose what to do from inside the ball. And that, um, you can do this as a healing meditation, right? So you can go from there into a body scan, anything that hurts or is sore, or even if you're facing a health battle, um, then you can start to focus that sort of safe green ball energy on the part of your body that, that's hurting. You can use it as a healing meditation, or you can also just use it as a, as a safe, sort of emotion-free space. So inside the ball, you are safe, you are calm, you are loved, you are protected. You can just sit and breathe and be. And you've created essentially this sort of bubble to meditate in, this this protective space to meditate in. And again, uh, that sounds a little hooey-wooey. I'm sure a couple of people are like checking out right now as I say that, but it it works great uh, for me as an adult. It works great for first-time meditators. It works amazing with kids. uh, If you can get them to do it, then my son will often be like, I don't want to come out of my ball. You know, like I'm so, like, I'm so calm. I'm so happy in, in here. And so, um, that's, that's just a great one because it helps you by the time you've inflated the ball, you've gotten your brain working in a meditative way. And then you can go off from there and tap. You could do a hear, see, feel practice in there. You could just focus on your breathing from there. You can do a body scan. You can do a health meditation. You can do whatever you want from inside the ball, but the process of getting into the ball put you in a meditative state already. It's a hack to, to do the work, to, to get sort of a little bit down the road so that you get out of that space of wondering if you're doing it right or being tangled up and how many seconds you're breathing or all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Okay. Well just jump in, step back out of the practical for a second back to, you know, you, you say that some stories, bad stories that cause us pain in ourselves and in others. So it, it might seem obvious to some people, but how is it we cause pain in others through the stories we tell ourselves? 
and we, we can cause pain in others through the stories we tell ourselves and through the stories we give to them, uh, either actively or inadvertently. So um, one of the ways, it just, you know, the, the experience of my mom, um, after her death, that bad story was creating so much grief. I was angry. You know, I talk about it in the book. I call them the failed emotional states, frustration, anger, irritability, loss of self-care, exile, depression. I was doing all of them. And all of that had a real significant effect on my wife. I mean, if you can imagine a new mom uh, with a baby and a husband in that state, you know, frustrated, angry, irritable, right? That's exactly what she didn't need at the time. So, um, you, you know, and if I'd let that continue, luckily my wife gave me a lot of grace. She's she's a really amazing person at, at realizing when things aren't about her and being able to step back from that and and seeing that it was hurting. Um, but you know, if, if I'd continued that three years, four years, five years down the road, it's at some point enough is enough. You can do some real damage to your most important relationships by having your own emotional range out of whack. Um, I was also very, had a lot of anxiety because of that. And anxiety is a very contagious emotion, right? And so you're trying to raise children to be strong and independent and take risks and be resilient, but they feel that dad's really anxious, Right. And so you, you transmit that emotion to them. That's one of the reasons happiness and positivity is so powerful because if you can get yourself in that state, you're also transmitting that to them. Right. So that's, that's part of the antidote here. So you can do real damage uh, to the people around you because your bad stories are affecting your emotional state so much. You know, some people have stories early in my entrepreneurship career. I had, I had some bad stories about wealth where I would block myself from creating wealth. Um, and that has a real negative impact on your family long-term. If you can't break a wealth barrier, not because you don't have the skills, but because you have some emotional hangups about getting wealthy. Um, and so uh, that's the way we sort of do damage to those around us with our own bad stories. But I think more often we do damage to people around us by giving them bad stories, by being uh, sloppy and loose with our language. Um, so, you know, you're, you'll tell your partner things about them. You know, you'll, you know, if you're telling your partner, oh, you always do this with the kids or uh, this is why you haven't reached your fitness goals or all these things you might inadvertently say in conversations with people you love, you're helping them, you're giving them information to write their stories. And again, going back to being a father and with kids, you know, we're great at this. Every time you say you always to a kid, you just wrote a story. And what is that story going to do for them 20 years from now? right? If you're telling one kid they're really tough and the other one they're not, well, then that kid's got a story now that he's not really tough. And the other one's got a story saying they are tough. And now they have to be tough to live up to the story you've given them, even if in this moment they don't want to be tough. My son recently, when our dog died, uh, was holding his emotions in for a long time because he didn't want to make the rest of us sad. He wanted to be strong for the rest of the family. And as you know, if you hold back emotions, they come for you and they, they bite you eventually. They're, they're mm-hmm. going to get you. And so he he somehow had gotten a story because, he's, you know, he, we do a lot of adventures with our kids. So sort of physical toughness, taking a hit, falling down, crashing on your yeah, bike sure. is something they need to develop to keep up in, in the things we do. And he had somehow conflated that with this emotional toughness, which became a story that wasn't serving him. And uh, so being loose and sloppy with our language, being uh, in some cases, um, you know, outright contrary to to the best interests of the people we love and the things we say to them can write really powerful stories. When I work with my clients, I I, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but it's, it's incredibly high that the first story we're trying to beat down, the first story we're trying to break was given to them by a primary caregiver, loved one in the first 15 years of their life. So you know, when working with a coaching client, 
you know, but they'll come to me with, you know, a problem in their career, a problem in their work. But when we really get digging into the stories and we start asking those questions, well, why is that important to you? What, you know, why are you fighting that fight? What's your story about that? It eventually always leads back to some of these really hurtful primary stories that were written sometimes in an instant, a single argument, a single utterance from a coach or a teacher or a parent that wrote a story that's now uh, having these effects 30, 40, 50 years later. And so that's uh, story is so important on that front because we can really just uh, do all this inadvertent damage to people. Wow. So, I mean, so people are probably pretty alarmed right now, especially if they're parents. I mean, is there anything we could do to uh, identify those kind of things in us and, and what are maybe more examples of it? I don't know how we might, uh, you know, because people are like, okay, what, how do I be careful about what I say? I mean, you're telling them you got to be aware, but. Yeah, I think, well, anytime you always, the, the you always, the you nevers. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not a saint with this. I'm, I'm sure today I said you always to my son. I'm sure like I, I fail at this all the time. Cause you're, you know, you're a parent, you're a human being. You have to give yourself some grace. Nobody's perfect. So you gotta, you gotta start from that. This isn't a, you know, an episode on, on parent shaming, but <laughs> it, 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 as much as you can stay away from the, you always, the you nevers. Um, and then as much as you can give them positive, bits of information and positive stories to counteract the negative ones. Because to some degree, some of these utterances that I worked through with people that created a story that has negatively affected them for 30 years, the other human being who said that has never thought of it again. In the, in the instant, it wouldn't be anything you or I would try to correct or delete from our vocabulary. It just hit in a way we didn't intend. And so with your children, you can use a modified version of the core four. Um, in fact, I have a chapter in the book called the, the core four family style to give your kids better information to counteract the times when you're going to mess this up because you're going to mess it up. So um, we do a a daily practice at dinner um, where we do favorite parts and appreciates. So that gives the the kids a chance to say their favorite parts of the day, which is kind of a gratitude practice for kids who can't wrap their mind around gratitude yet. They're not old enough. So Mm -hmm. they're just lining up positive bits of information, their favorite parts of the day. And then we do appreciates where they, our kids will say something they appreciate about mom, dad, and brother and sister all the way around the table. And we do the same. So that means at least once a day, we take a break from everything going on in the world and we tell our kids something we appreciate about them, something that's great about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we also build in kids love uh, routines and traditions. So, you know, we build into our bedtime routine with my son. You know, I love you. I'm proud of you. I had a great day with you. Right. And so no matter what negative you've done throughout the day, you're at least giving them um, some positive underpinnings that show them that regardless of what kind of a day we've had at the end of the day, I still love you. I'm still proud of you. You know, we, we, we are connected. You are important. And that will help them build these bigger, better overarching stories that will hopefully combat the bad ones that are just coming no matter what you can't, you can't not give your kids bad stories. It's not going to happen. And the world's going to do it for you if you don't. So your job is to help give them as many good ones as you can. Man, that's excellent. Wow. Um, I, how about this then on, on happiness, um, you say, uh, building the life you want, starts with happiness. And uh, that's very curious to me because I think most people think that they have to achieve all their goals and build their life dreams and finally reach happiness. Why do you say we have to get happy first? Uh, quote 
Yeah, and I'm standing on the shoulders of giants there. Like the the, the positive psychology movement, the the Martin Seligman's, uh, you know, the Chicks and Highs, the Sean Acors, they've done all the the functional research, you know, behind this, and and that was part of my sort of getting a Ph a personal PhD in happiness for those two years was reading all that and what all these guys um, uh, and women who contribute to the field of positive psychology and happiness research have in common is that everything is better when you start with happiness. So if happiness is something uh, we're chasing, a state we're trying to get to, we'll never get there. So the the sort of common American model might be, uh, you know, when I graduate high school and I'm finally free of my parents, I'll be happy. And then you're in college. When I graduate college and I, I'm done with this school thing and I'm free to pursue my career, I'll be happy. Oh, when I get the promotion, I'll be happy. When I finally get married, when I have my children, I'll be happy. Oh, when I have my life back and my children moved out, I'll be happy. You know, so happiness always becomes over the next horizon and you get to that next horizon and you realize there's nothing there. There never was, right? The, the happiness wasn't waiting for you. If you can't, one of my favorite quotes is, if you can't feel it now, you won't feel it then, right? When you arrive at the mountaintop, you only have what you brought with you. It's yeah. a barren landscape. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And so doing the work of getting happy first and realizing this is an internal state, like I can create the right habits. I can create the, the, I can get the bad stories out of my way. I can do the work of getting happy now. Now, all of a sudden I'm 30% more likely to get the promotion or to make a sale. I'm having better outcomes across the board because I've put my brain in this happy state. Um, so uh, success and, and, and positive outcomes follows happiness, not the other way around. Okay. And, and that's about uh, clearing out the stories that hold you back. You say it's the first step towards chasing your dreams. So that's, uh, that's getting happy. Is it in the neurochemical sense, I guess? Clearing yeah. Out the stories? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you could do 14 whole podcasts on the definition of happiness. I know oh, on man. your, on your website, you use eudaimonia, which I use in the book too. Um, you know, which literally means human flourishing, yeah. which, which is a great one, right? It, I want to flourish. I want people around me to flourish. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't give you the steps of how to, how to get there. Right. And, and, and so um, I think the, when you're defining happiness, defining the pathway is as important as defining the the goal. Right. And so um, you're looking for uh, the way we're going to get there. And there's uh, there's this famous surfer, Doc Paskowitz. He has a quote about health that I think you could morph into one of the better definitions of happiness. I'll, I'll read it. It's yeah. health is more than the mere absence of disease. It's a presence of, of a superior state of well-being, a pizzazz, a vitality that has to be worked for each and every day of your life. You cannot get it in a bottle or from Dr. Phil. It's got to be gotten through diet and exercise and rest and recreation and attitudes of mind working all together every day of your life. Those were Doc's words. And if you just swap out happiness for for health in there, happiness is more than the mere absence of depression. It is a presence of a superior state of well-being, a pizzazz, a vitality that has to be worked for each and every day of your life. You cannot get it in a bottle or from Dr. Phil. It's got to be gotten through diet and exercise and rest and recreation, attitudes of mind, working all together every day of your life. So that's that's the prescription. That's the layout. That's, That's how you get there. And that's, that's what happiness is. It's doing that process again and again, every day of your life. And the reason the stories are important is because you can't create that proper neurochemical environment in your brain and make it stick and make it last. If you keep defaulting back to this bad story, no matter what I did, I didn't fight for my mom. I just stood there and watched her die was, was stomping out any 
anything I did to be happy. I could go rafting for the day. I could go skiing for the day. I could have a great day with my son. If it wasn't just an overwhelming experience of happiness, it wasn't getting through that filter because that, that filter said I had failed completely in one of the most important people in my life. So if you get those bad stories out of your way and then you do the prescription, what he's laying out in that quote is almost exactly the core four that I talk about in the yeah. book, right? Um, then you create happiness uh, and you just keep doing that over and over and over again. And then you realize this is in me. I'm, crea- I'm, I'm taking an active role. I'm creating this. I'm the architect of my own life here. I don't have to go out and get happiness. It's right here. It's on offer every day. And not like, you know, I joked at my dad when I asked him if he's happy. He's like, well, I'm not running around like a giggling idiot all the time. Right. We're not, yeah. we're not talking about th- that. We're not talking about never feeling anything that's bad or using positivity to batter away <laughs> negative experiences. Yeah. The day my mom died still sucked. It was the worst day of my life, but I can still have happiness now by creating it this way. I'm not ignoring the, the negativity, uh, but I am saying I can take an active role in creating an outcome that I'd rather have. Mm-hmm. I was just laughing at some of the things that you say is some of the things, almost exactly what I say. Um, it's so funny. <laughs> and I concur completely with the, the, the definition you read about health and in happiness. And another thing I'd like to highlight here is I'm really pleased that you say that when you, when you get happy first, then you're more likely to achieve the outcomes that you're talking about. That's something that it's worth repeating and highlighting here and emphasizing. And in the way of emphasizing things, I know you've already probably, you've said this a lot because you're talking about fighting every day, but, uh, I don't, I don't think it's uh, helpful to hear these things again. So you say happiness is a daily choice. And this speaks again against that idea of happiness as a destination. Um, so why must, we, why must we fight daily for happiness? Just to, I guess just to emphasize it one more time. Yeah, and I use, I use the, the, the hashtag all the time on my posts, stay in the fight, right? Okay. Um, the, the reason you need to do that is because every, everything in your programming is, is going the other way for the most part. Like I said, your brain is sort of programmed out of the box to write these bad stories. Your brain is programmed to be uh, fearful and negative for your survival. And in a world where you're not battling for physical life every day, all of a sudden that's creating all these negative outcomes like depression and anxiety, right? And, and we're faced in our world with now in the social media sort of era, we're faced with all these fake images of what happiness and what a good life looks like. We're all looking at on social media at people's highlight reel uh, of their best day over and over and over again. And, and you have to be wildly strong or quit it altogether to not get into the space of trying to compare your life to their best day. And you're not seeing all of their struggles, right? So I say all the time, if, if you look at somebody and, you, and their chest is rising and falling, they're suffering, right? And people don't like that. They don't like that word. In fact, I, that word was in the title of my book and I had to take it out because it, it just got, yeah, mm-hmm. it got so much negative response. People are like, I'm not suffering. You know, no, I, don't, I mean, I might have a bad day, but I'm not suffering. But, but the truth is these, these bad stories and these things make us suffer. And we're, we're sort of prone and pre-wired to do that. And if you leave these things unchecked in their, in their worst version, you can have some really you know, negative outcomes. And, and we see this with people who um, they don't get help for it and they don't, uh, they don't have someone helping them do the work. And then in some cases, we even lose them. And so staying in the fight is, is being uh, in the process of just doing that daily tune-up every day so you don't ever let this thing get so far that it's hard to come back from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the two years I was depressed, I would say nobody knew except for my wife. Um, you know, I, I was doing great as a real estate entrepreneur. Uh, I was a good dad. I would go out and have drinks with my friends. Nobody knew. In fact, the number one reaction I've gotten to the book from friends who have read it is, 
oh man, I'm so sorry. I wasn't there for you. I, you know, I didn't know. And and that's because I was hiding it. Um, and, and men do this even worse than women. We, we hide the things we're suffering from. And so, uh, being open about the fact that this is a daily choice. This is a daily battle. This isn't something you're supposed to just have. This isn't something that is just given to you for free. And when you look around and you think everybody else is happy, why aren't I? You start to think, well, they've got it and I don't. Well, how come they got it and I didn't? And then that has this really um, deleterious mental health effect. So realizing that it's a choice and that it's a daily fight, this just becomes something you get to choose to have or not. It's not mm-hmm. something that you've been left out of. It's not a gift you haven't been given, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's really important for people to realize, like, this is on offer today. If you just ran through the core four and that's all you did today, mm-hmm. you would be quite a bit happier and more emotionally resilient than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. If you find that one story that is, is making you suffer, that one that's causing you pain, which is really easy, just think about a part of your life that's not working, and boom, ask yourself what your story is about that. If you rewrite that one story, you get one of those out of your way, the, the emotional boost you get, the, the, the positivity, the lightness, the freedom you get from that, you'll be hooked. You, you're not going to need a book anymore. You're not going to need you know, me or Matthew to tell you to do this. You're going to want to do this work over and over again every day because it's everything you've been searching for all of your life, and it's right there inside you on offer today. You don't have to go out there and change your external circumstances to get it. It's yours to have now. So that's, that's why it's important to realize happiness is a choice and you just, you just stay in the fight. You just work out a little bit every day mm-hmm. and, and that's it. That's, there's no secrets. It's just work. Right. Well, I guess this is all, I mean, I don't know if there's anything that there's going to be a different answer to this, but I do just to, to highlight what's going on now for a lot of people in the past year, right? This pandemic response has caused mental suffering on a scale. We won't know the full extent of for a long time. So this is really pertinent right now. And how can any individual prevent the pandemic from writing stories that will hold them back for decades, as you put it? I don't know if the answer is different, but that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, saying. in regards to the, the pandemic and the stories we're writing from the pandemic, the, the key is to try to shine a light on the stories you've already written because we're we're already over a year into this, right? Yeah. Carl, Carl Jung said, uh, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And that mm-hmm. that that quote hits like a ton of bricks if you take the time to think about it. You've got all these stories inside you that are driving every outcome in your life and you've never written them down. You've never taken them outside yourself. You've never said them out loud. You've never worked on these stories. You've never taken an active role in crafting them. And so until now, you just believe this is fate. This is where you're being taken. A good friend of mine says, if you're living in the present, you can sp- split that into two words, present. You present yourself to this very moment. This, this isn't happenstance. You made choices that got you right here to right now. You just might not have been paying attention to what those choices were or the stories that took you here. And so we already have a whole list of stories that we've written out of this pandemic and out of uh, the social rifts it's created. Uh, I don't know if it's the same in your country, but it's been very politicized in our country. Yeah, big time. Well, I mean, I'm not immune from that being here. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all of those stories are now written. They're now inside you. So if you just take some time as we begin to exit here, because we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, there's a version of this where you just move back into your life. And this was a year and a half that sucked. And you just try not to think about it and you go on. And then whatever stories you wrote from it will continue to affect you. And those stories can be, um, some people will have a harder time having a physical presence with people moving forward from this. People will have a harder time sort of greeting people with hugs and handshakes. People will, some people will have a harder time moving back into indoor activities. Um, some people will have a harder time taking risks with their children again. 
There's all these things. And if you take the time to ask yourself, what's my story here? What's my story about the pandemic? Like if you pre-think about the first time I'm going to go into a dinner party again, how am I going to feel? What's my story about interacting with 20 humans at once, right? And if you take the time to think about that now, write those down and do the story evolution process and craft those into stories for the future you want them to be, then the pandemic can be something that informs a better future for you rather than something that creates pathologies that you'll live out. Um, and, and I see this in my own life, just watching, I was watching Netflix the other day mm-hmm. and they were having to, I think it was like a hostage exchange. They had to bring the money and I was, and he's going to hand the bag over. I'm like, how's he going to do that in a socially distant way? Well, he's getting too close <laughs> to that guy, you know? And, and so you think our brains have just been wired in these new pathways. Right. Uh, and so if you catch yourself, even little things like that, think, well, wait a second, what's, what's my story there? What's really driving that feeling? Shine a light on those things, get them out of you and do the work. Maybe some of them you want to keep. Maybe, maybe there are some ways you've um, changed your financial reality or changed your family structure. Maybe there's some uh, new routines you've developed because you couldn't go out to the movies and 15 birthday parties in a week that you want to keep that are great mm-hmm. and positive things for your family. Those things will go away quicker than you can imagine when you're able to get back out and do everything again. And so if there's even, it doesn't have to be bad stories. It could be some good things you want to keep from what you've learned in the pandemic. If you don't take the time to sort of actively shine a light on those, write those stories and and reincorporate them into your subconscious in a way that you can live those out moving forward, then then the pandemic just did what it's going to do to you and you're not in control of it. And we've had enough. I personally have had enough of not being in control the last year and a half. And so I'm ready to take control of any part of this. I can grab some control over and your stories moving out of this experience or something you have complete control over. Wow. I hope everybody takes that message. Really? That is excellent. Um, I'll tell you what though. uh, I I mean, Rich, is there anything here that we, you know, I've missed you want to highlight anything I didn't ask you that you really love to talk about and I just totally blew it, uh, ignored it. Uh let's let's quickly go through the story evolution process just so like i hate those people who who get on a podcast and tell you yeah here's how you can fix yourself and uh, go buy my book (laughs) you know like they don't actually give you the goods right so um let's i'm gonna go through the story evolution process real quick so right now whoever's listening to this you could sit down at the end of the podcast and rewrite a story um so the the first step is to like i say identify a story um so that is think about an area of your life that you're not happy with your fitness your relationships, your, you know, parenting, your career goals, whatever it is, think about something that's causing you pain and ask yourself, what's my story about that? Write it down and then ask yourself, is it true? And does it serve me? Once you've done that work, then you can go to step one, which is writing the story out word for word. And I recommend doing this actually like on pen and paper, um, preferably not on the computer, actually writing it out, doing that work um, so you can physically get it out of yourself. So this story has been a part of you for a long time. And it's easy to say, you need to rewrite your story about that. Just change your story. Uh, but if you don't actually take it out of you, fix it, and then reimplant it in your subconscious, it won't do anything. So you write it down, you get it out on paper and you look at it. And then I recommend saying it out loud. And if you're willing to take this step, I recommend recording yourself saying it out loud. Get your smartphone out and the first time you do it and record yourself saying this out loud, you will see on your face the parts of that story that hurt you, that don't work. You will see a twinge, a cringe, a hiccup. Your body will manifest for you what part of that story doesn't work for you. And then you simply mark those on your story. You just put a little tick mark on the parts of that sentence or that story that don't work for you. I did this recently with my son around distance learning. My seven-year-old loves school, is amazing learner, can't read, like he'll just sit by himself and read National Geographic and ignore me for hours at a time. 
And he came to me and said, dad, I hate school. And I was like, whoa, that is not you. So I recorded him. I showed him the video. I said, does that look, does that look right? Does that look like you? Does that look like that's making you happy? He said, no, I look terrible, dad. And so we sat down and we worked through the story evolution process and he rewrote his story. And then I recorded him again and he was lighter and happier. And we, we did these exact steps. So he said it out loud and we recorded it so we could see it. And then he, I had him rewrite it, just like I'm going to ask you to do. So step three is rewrite it. You're going to rewrite it line by line. Take the first part. So in my mom's story, we didn't fight for mom. We just stood there and watched her die. I would check off. We didn't fight for my mom. And I changed that to I fought for my mom in every way I could. And then the rest of the bad story would be there. And you read it again. And you see, does it work? Does it feel good? No? All right. Get that next checkmark part and rewrite that. It's an iterative process. So you get to the point where you read it and you feel lighter and better and it feels like it fits. And the key here is it has to still be true. It has to be equally true, but positive. And so for my son, we didn't ignore the fact that doing school on Zoom sucks. It does. So his story was uh, doing Zoom on school sucks, but it's still an opportunity to see my teachers and friends and learn, right? So he could see the good in it. I get to still see my teachers and friends and learn, but we're not ignoring the fact that, that Zoom sucks. So it has to still be yeah, true yeah. for you. In fact, I tried to delete the part that said uh, doing, doing school on Zoom sucks. And I said, does that feel real to you? And he said, no, dad, it sucks. I, I want that in the story, you know? Yeah. Um, and so you rewrite it step-by-step step into an equally true but positive version. And then step four is the most important. And uh, I think the self-help industry is often complicit in helping people sort of rename and keep their problems because telling people you have to do hard work over several months doesn't sell books, right? Telling people here's four easy steps and you'll have this done by evening, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sells books. Yep. And so uh, I'm, I'm really clear in the book that this isn't rocket science. It's, it's easy to do but it takes work. And so step four is re-implanting the story in your subconscious. And that takes a minimum of 30 days, 60 to 90 days better. And that means telling yourself that story at least twice a day, writing it down, putting it up somewhere you can see it and read it. If it's an appropriate story, if the story involves trauma or something, your kids are going to see it, then you might have to choose where you're going to put that up. Mm-hmm. Um, but putting the new story up in a place where you can see it at least twice a day, telling it to yourself at least first thing when you get up in the morning and right before you go to bed at night over the course of at least 30 days to create a new neural pathway to your subconscious to tr- get that story triggered. Because if you just say a new story and then, and, and then someone talks about that thing and triggers you, your old story is going to be what's triggered. You already have a pathway for that. It's on active recall. So you have to write this new pathway. And another great way to do that is to make it part of your lived oral tradition. So depending on where you live and whether you can go out to dinner with people at this point in the pandemic or not. But uh, what I did with my mom's stories, I started going out to dinner and drinks with all my friends and admitting to them that I was depressed and suffering for two years, telling them the story that was causing it. And then I tell them my new story and I'd share with them what I'd been through. Um, And so by making it part of that lived oral tradition, I had to tell the story over and over and over again. So now if I talk about the day my mom died, the version of the story that is I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way is what comes up. Not the old one where I didn't fight for my mom. But if I hadn't done that work over and over and over again to reimplant that story in my subconscious, it, w- it would have just been the old story would have kept coming up. So step four is the most important one. Tell it over and over again. Share it with everybody you can. Put it up where you can see it. And if you find you get triggered and the old story pops back up, go back and do the work over again. Just keep doing it until you get the right neural pathway connected to that new story. Because 
story affects us in the oldest part of our brain, the, the part of our brain that's responsible for biological survival. There's this brilliant researcher, Mary Helen Imerdino Yang, who uh, does work by telling people inspiring story and then looking at their brain on an fMRI machine. And what there's lots of areas that light up like the insula that controls your gut function. Um, but the most interesting one is the medulla lights up, right? And the medulla is the thing that keeps you breathing when you're asleep, keeps your blood pressure going. It's, it's responsible for your biological survival. And you'd think over the years, we would have created an impenetrable firewall around that part of our brain. If you take a hit in this part of the brain, they can't even keep you alive on life support for more than 15 minutes in the hospital. Yeah. And so you think we'd protect that at all costs. But instead, if I tell you an inspiring story, in fact, it's very likely even a painful story, like the story of my mom's death, it's very likely your amygdala, uh, um, your medulla, pardon me, lit up when I told you that story. And that means a couple of things. It means it's getting electricity and it means it's getting blood flow, which means we just changed your brain at the neural level in the biological survival center by telling you a story. Now, if we can do that by telling you an inspiring story, imagine the damage you're doing with the negative story. And imagine how powerful your connection to that old negative story that you've had forever is. So step four, the telling it over and over again, doing the work to implant in your subconscious, that is to get it right down deep in there to where it's only that positive version that's triggering so that you can be doing the work of creating a positive outcome in that biological center of your brain, not a negative outcome. Oh man, well, I'm tempted to, to talk back to so much of that, but I'm going to let it sit because I'm going to look at that later and and I've got a lot of things <laughs> in that. Oh my, and I almost blew it, uh, Rich. Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up and, and went went ahead with it and told us all about that because that's the real goods uh, today. And you've really given us the goods today. I wonder if you have anything else you want to say on top, like just the same question. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Because I got time. There's something <laughs> else that you love to talk about that's important that you want to share or otherwise something that to summarize what... Uh, you know, final word, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I go back to that to that quote that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the questions we ask and the stories we yeah. tell ourselves. And if you sort of make that your 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 driving light, like you know, just question your responses to things. Why why did I do that? What's my story about that? The more powerful the questions you ask, the better outcomes you're going to get, and they're going to lead you down the road of these stories. And I think uh, we just don't question ourselves enough because of that sort of 80% autopilot, um, you know, how we run our lives. We don't stop and think, why am I doing this? Is it taking me where I, I want to go? We, um, I taught guy, whitewater guide school for 16 years and I would teach them these three mantras of learning how to guide a whitewater raft. And one of them uh, is, you know, point where you want to go and get there. Um, and it's said that way on purpose because people will sit down in the boat and they've heard the guide yell all forward and they just yell all forward while the bow of the boat's pointing to the bushes and we go eat the bushes and bounce off the rocks. And it's hilarious and a little bit uncomfortable, uh, but we don't get anywhere we want to go. And they have to learn to first set their angle and point the boat where they want to go and then yell all forward, right? So mm -hmm. you have to initiate direction before momentum yes. and questions leading us to stories are what creates that direction. So mm -hmm. uh, if you want direction before momentum in your life, if you don't want to just be hitting the gas all forward and see what wall I hit, then you need to ask yourself those questions and get your stories straight. And then you'll be going exactly where you want to go. So you can be the architect of your own examined and intentional life. And that's, you know, I say I want to change as many lives as I can one story at a time. That's, mm -hmm. that, that's the point. If you can just get to the point where you can ask yourself questions to make sure you're pointing where you want to go in each step in each area of your life, man, you'll be killing it compared to where you are now. You, you, won't, you, you won't be able to imagine how good that feels uh, down the road compared to just blindly following these, these stories that are programmed into you and not knowing where you're going to end up.
Mm-hmm. Oh man. And I, and you know what? I was laughing because I do have a question about the raft guiding direction before momentum. I love that, ter- that uh, terminology and I just got lost here. You got me so rattled with it, with it, with coming at me <laughs> with everything. And uh, so I'm glad you brought that up again, but uh, I, I, this is, this is very, all very valuable and I'm very excited to revisit this episode and go back in, get the book on top. And really um, I'm going to put this stuff into practice because um, it sounds like I've been looking for practical tools and I think we've hit them today because I've been talking a lot about resilience lately and other things. And, and of course, from the very beginning, uh, you and, and all that stuff, but, but, um, and, and I get a lot of good, good things, but I think we're hitting something uh, very exciting here today and I'm very excited about it. So I very much appreciate it. Um, I want to say to listeners uh, that if you're excited about it too, and you think somebody else would uh, really get a benefit from this, please share it with that person or share it at large, of course, is, is always good. Um, you can also ask follow-up questions, make comments, share your experiences in the comments section uh, where you're listening, or you can go to the Mr. Brightside Facebook page, facebook.com slash matthewbolton.ca. Um, Rich, what about if people want to connect directly with you or learn about your work or where would you direct them? Oh yeah. RichCurtis.com is the best way to find me. That's with a C R I C H C U R T I S.com. Uh, if you're interested in the book, you can just search change your story, change your life, rich Curtis uh, on Amazon. And uh, it's the blue and yellow one. And those are, those are two great ways to find me or get, get connected with, uh, with the information and the message. Excellent. And I'll tell you, Rich, uh, thank you very much for doing all that heavy lifting of, you know, that study, your personal PhDs and uh, condensing it for us in a book. And then for coming on here and, and really laying it out. Uh, this is a, a lot more than I than I might have even thought I would get out of this. So uh, and, and I don't I don't know what that what that implies, but it's really <laughs> I, I, I mean it in a very positive way. This is excellent today. And I very much appreciate coming on. I, I had a great pleasure and thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I love being in the realm of ideas and, and, and talking with someone who's like-minded. So thanks for your time today. And thanks to the listeners for anybody who's gotten this far and gets to the end. Thanks so much for sticking with us. Right on. Yeah. And then back to listeners, I just want to paraphrasing from Rich's book. I bid you withdraw your, the power you grant to others and to circumstances that hold you back and cause you to suffer. Set yourself free by taking responsibility for creating your own lasting happiness through living an examined and intentional life in which you rewrite the stories that shape it. Change your story, change your life. It's that simple. I'll see you guys next time. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side. 